Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to Episode 79 of the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV Podcast Network. On today's show, we have a retired United States Army Senior Leader, Brigadier General Don Bolduck, talking about how he first acknowledged the impact of multiple deployments on his psychological health, got effective treatment for it, led from the front in establishing mental health screenings for everyone assigned to Special Operations Command Africa, and faced transition difficulties similar to many service members leaving the military. There isn't this warm handshake, right, from active duty to becoming a veteran. And you're in this third thing, and you don't understand this third thing. And this third thing doesn't have the same things in it to take care of you all the time. And you may not have a job. You may end up homeless. The suicide rate is, is, is what it is because of this. Drugs and alcohol, incarceration, it's this third thing you're not set up for success in. You know, even... You know, even myself, you think, oh, he's a retired general. He's got it made. No, I'm telling you, I didn't have it made. It was a struggle. And my wife talks to people about this was the most difficult time of our life and our marriage. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about federal mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, as you know, we often have mental health professionals on the show talking about what they do regarding mental health, uh, and we also have veterans themselves talking about their, their mental health journey and some of their experience uh, with mental health. Uh, and uh, in this episode really is in that second category, but it's really, really in that second category uh, because we have uh, one of the Army's senior leaders, uh, former senior leaders, here talking about uh, a lot of the stigma around help-seeking uh, and, uh, and how to change that, uh, that culture in the military. 
so my guest today is uh, General Don Bolduck, and uh, we're going to have a conversation about uh, his experience. So, Don, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, uh, Dwayne. It's great to be uh, asked uh, and have the opportunity to come on your show. Thank you. Absolutely. I uh, I think that uh, uh, for a while now, I've been seeing what uh, what you've been doing. I think the first time that uh, that I really noticed there was, a, I think, a New York Times article uh, highlighting what you were doing while you were still in active service, um, but then even how much more you've done since you've left the service. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about your background. Well, uh, I'll be brief. I had the opportunity to be born and raised in the state of New Hampshire in the city of Laconia, a small community uh, that my dad grew up in his entire life. Uh, My mom grew up not too far away uh, in uh, Belmont, New Hampshire uh, from from Laconia. Uh, And she moved around a little bit, but uh, she was living there when my dad met her. So we you know, we claim Belmont, New Hampshire. Anyways, uh, had a wonderful uh, childhood where I learned uh, a lot about focus, hard work, and never quitting by uh, working on our family farm. Had some great uh, <clears throat> teachers and coaches uh, that uh, helped me develop my uh, values and merit-based and faith-based approaches to life. So I'm very appreciative of all the efforts that they put into uh, shaping me into a, into an adult, um, uh, very religious family, uh, Catholic orientation. Uh, and so, uh, went to Catholic school. So I learned a good, uh, dose of, uh, values, uh, and ethics, uh, and, and my faith uh, there, which I've continued to practice my entire life, had the opportunity to uh, joined the military uh, right out of high school, uh, and uh, as a young private and sergeant, uh, I decided that I'd become a uh, officer. So I did, and I was commissioned in 1988. Uh, and uh, I was influenced by the movie The Green Berets in 1968, watching it with my grandfather and my younger brother uh, uh, AJ. Uh, we were dressed up in battle gear and had pillows as our cover and concealed positions. And we watched that movie. Uh, my uncle Don was in Vietnam at the time. So it was, you know, real to our family. And uh, it, uh, I guess, shaped me a little bit in my career progression. So I went uh, special forces as soon as I was uh, eligible, uh, spent 24 years in special ops, a total of 32 years in the Army and had the uh, honor of commanding Special Operations Command Africa as my last assignment uh, in Stuttgart, Germany. And uh, that was quite an honor. Uh, And my wife and I retired uh, a year ago now, uh, last October, and um, came home to Stratham, New Hampshire, where we decided uh, to settle because it was halfway between my family in Laconia and her family in the North Shore in Massachusetts. Um, And we have uh, three grandchildren, uh, which we're very proud of. Uh, Grandson named Josh, granddaughter Hadley, granddaughter Hannah. Uh, They live here 
in New Hampshire. My son works in Portsmouth. I have another son who goes to Shippensburg University, and he's in the Pennsylvania National Guard. And my third son is a student at Purdue University uh, on a four-year ROTC scholarship. So he'll be a lieutenant soon uh, in the United States Army once he graduates from Purdue. We've been blessed uh, to live in a great country. I've been blessed to have the opportunity to serve this country. And now my wife and I are heavily involved in supporting veterans. Uh, I am now teaching as an adjunct professor at Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, and I also have the opportunity to support two businesses here in New Hampshire doing leadership, uh, training and coaching for entry-level, mid-level, and senior-level uh, members of, uh, of their organization. So uh, have the opportunity to do these things that I love. Uh, and that was, of course, given to me uh, because of uh, this great country and the people that served before me that currently serve and those that will serve in the future. So um, that's it in a nutshell. It's, uh, it's always amazing to me that we can uh, sum up about a quarter century's worth of experience Whereas, uh, actually, for you, from uh, 88 to uh, 2017, that's almost 30 years, plus the enlisted time. So um, you spent a, a very large portion of your life in service uh, to our country. And, and that's sort of the, the overview, right? You know, the big hand, little map kind of, um, uh, kind of Reader's Digest version. Um, but in the, the later part of your career, you really started being vocal about, or at least publicly started being vocal about the impact of um, combat, the impact of rapid deployments, uh, and everything <clears throat> that on, on veteran mental health. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, very much so. My wife noticed, uh, at, I think about uh, 2006 or seven that... Um, that I was, you know, very different. Uh, and that was, uh, after my two ro two rotations. So those would have, that would have been my third rotation in Afghanistan. Uh, but my two rotations as a battalion commander, um, <clears throat> and then I think my, my, um, my fourth and fifth rotation, she really noticed a huge difference in me. I did a total of 10. So it was, um, <clears throat> I was there quite a bit. Uh, and my wife noticed a quite a quite a bit of changes in me, and of course I did too. But uh, I chose to ignore them uh, when I should have probably paid more attention to them. Uh, and and you know, the the military and the army was still trying to get its arm around you know uh, PTS, and TBI, and you know pain management and you know, all these other things uh, that they, you know, struggled with to understand and change perspectives and cultures and develop programs. <clears throat> and so, you know, you kind of take your lead off of that, right? And and so I did. And one of the reasons I volunteered to deploy so much is I felt very normal in that environment, and I didn't feel very normal at home. It's not because home was bad. It's because all the things that I learned to survive in combat uh, for more than a day uh, over multiple rotations, uh, doesn't fit very well back here, uh, when you come home and it's hard to make that adjustment, particularly when you're not given the coping mechanisms to do so. Right. And when it's not recognized kind of as acceptable and, oh, if I admit this, then I'm, I'm going to, 
I'm not going to be able to do this job or I'm going to miss this opportunity or I'm going to lose my clearance or I'm going to be put on a non-deployable roster. And all these things just, uh, you know, they they weigh on you. Uh, And uh, 2013, my wife said, hey, listen, uh, you know, we've kind of had enough of this in the family here uh, and you need to get some help. Uh, And so I took that uh, very seriously and I went to Lawrenceville Regional Medical Center and I talked to a great nurse by the name of Sarah McNary and she described this program to me that she had and I went in there for a full head to toe, um, you know, screening and I got a very good screening and identified a number of issues with me with PTS and TBI and, you know, how I more importantly, the therapy to go with correcting that, plus identified I had sleep disorder, sleep apnea, and of course we know how important sleep is to our mental and physical health and our well-being, so <clears throat> getting that straight is hugely important. You may not get a lot of sleep in the Army or in your job that you do, but the quality of your sleep is hugely important, and when you say, well, I got four hours of sleep, but really the quality of your sleep is maybe less than an hour, uh, you're really running on, <clears throat> you know, high stress and low sleep. And so the way you act and the way you do things and how you present yourself uh, may not be optimal uh, in a leadership role or as, you know, part of a team. So uh, those things became hugely important to me. And after two years of going through this program and the therapy, I realized that it wasn't enough just to take care of myself. I had to do something to take care of others. And so <clears throat> I went to the leadership in, in Special Operations Command Africa. And I said, hey, here's my story. This is what I did. I think it's important. I think, you know, I see it in others. You know, you see it more readily once you once you uh, are, are getting therapy and you, you can identify these things and triggers and so on and so forth. And I said, boy, you know, it's, it's just everywhere around us and we've got to start taking care of our people better. I think the rise in in DUIs and the rise in suicide, and, you know, driving under the influence and, and the drugs is kind of related to all this. So, you know, let's let's have a look see. And they were all for it. My command master chief, Rich Puglisi, a Navy SEAL, uh, he went in for the treatment. He was suffering from the same things I I was. And together we told our story. We became very open and vocal about it. We put together a program for our guys and uh, gals inside the unit. And uh, we gave them guarantees that they wouldn't lose their job. They wouldn't lose their clearance. They wouldn't be taking off, taken off their teams that, that they had the full support of the chain of command. And, and I put my money where my mouth was and New York times reporter wanted to do a story on it. And I said, yes. And I came out uh, in that article as a you know the first general officer on active duty and i think still the first first one and the last one right now um to come out on active duty and say hey listen uh, i've struggled with these problems this is how it's affected my personal and professional life and i think we can do better for ourselves and for our people and as a general if i can't take care of myself i certainly shouldn't have the responsibility of taking care of others um, and that was well received by a lot of people, but not well received by uh, the chain of command above me. Um, and so 
Uh, I got zero phone calls from him. I got zero support from him. But we knew we were right. We continued to move forward. Nobody told me to stop. So I didn't. Uh, and we didn't create something separate. We created something inside the medical system. And when it was all said and done, um, <clears throat> as I left command, we had identified 52 people in the unit with uh, PTS, 471 with TBI, uh, sleep apnea, pain management issues. But more importantly, we, we got them on a flexible and responsible therapy program uh, that um, addressed their issues, made them more resilient, made them more ready uh, in an environment uh, that supported that, an environment that put uh, people first. And I think as a result of that and the feedback that we got, we you know saved a lot of marriages. We saved a lot of careers. We saw driving under the influence. We saw alcohol-related incidents and drug-related incidents uh, because of self-medication and making uh, poor decisions go down in the unit. The command climate went up uh, in the unit, and that was, you know, measured by command climate surveys. Uh, and people were just uh, more resilient and more ready at the end of the day. Uh, and so we were very proud of this. We only had one individual that was flagged during the medical uh, screening that we did at Launch Duel. It was a three-day screening. We did guys that were deployed on the continent, and we did we did the entire Special Operations Command um, headquarters, uh, anyone that wanted to do it, uh, and we proved to them that we would back this up, and we did. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, as a result, the... Um, you know, we 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 had we had better performances and lower incidents, and we it allowed us to make better decisions about discipline. Because when a guy or a gal uh, had an alcohol-related incident, you know, the first thing we didn't do was go, you know, chop off their head. We went and asked additional questions: uh, Are they self-medicating? Is this is this a disciplinary issue because a lack of discipline or is this something that um, is a manifestation of them not getting taken care of uh, by the uh, by the service, by the, their leaders and so on and so forth? And it led to this. And that allowed us to make decisions on giving people second chances uh, in order to prove themselves. And I think um, I think that was hugely important. It had a huge effect on morale because people saw their families were and themselves were being put uh, first uh, when it was appropriate to do so uh, above the mission. So anyways, that was probably kind of long, but um, it takes a couple minutes there to explain all of that. And I think it's hugely important. Uh, and I think a point that I was going to make, we had one guy that showed a tumor and uh, he was one of my company sergeant majors, and he showed he had a tumor on his brain. Got him to uh, got him to Walter Reed to get that tumor taken out. Had he not been in this program, and had he not got that MRI at that time, there's no telling when that tumor would have been noticed. Uh, probably when it was too late, but the tumor was taken out 
as a result of the assessment while he was there, he got his hip replaced. So he got his new hip and it wasn't very long before he was back on duty uh, doing his thing. Uh, and I think um, <clears throat> I think that's a testament to one, our word, backing it up and, uh, um, you know, putting our guys through screening uh, a lot like we do with our equipment. Right. We seem to take care of our equipment better than we take care of people. You know, the equipment's on a on a you know, monthly, quarterly, semi-annual, annual checkup. Uh, I know my struggles in Africa trying to get a guy out of the African theater that was sick uh, take me about 48 hours. Uh, but when a, a part goes down to a, uh, you know, a high-end item, uh, aircraft or ISR asset or something like that, you know, it was in within 12 hours. Uh, and so... We, you know, we have to kind of do that with our people uh, because they are our most important asset. And if you want to increase your readiness, you got to increase the resilience of your folks. If you want to get more playing time out of them, then you have to invest in them. Otherwise, um, <clears throat> you know, optimal performance uh, is, you know, driven by optimal health. And I think that's hugely important. And you know, we're going to put people in combat assignments. It's not that they're weak. It's not that they aren't, they were uh, not tougher than generations before them, because we know based off of study and incidents that uh, warfare had an impact on our toughest guys, uh, uh, regardless of their service. And we have an obligation to take care of people um, and integrate them back into society uh, in the most responsible way we can as, uh, as senior leaders. And, and that's, uh, and, and as you said, with, uh, with the length of that, that's not the other side of the story that's usually told, right? You know, when, when somebody say, Hey, tell me about your time in the military, you know, you tell them about, you know, I raised E5 and, and, and then I went commission and then I went special forces and all these, all the highlights um, and, and sort of that's the cards that we show. We don't show the other cards. And, and definitely all of that uh, is, is important because it's the whole story. Uh, I really appreciate um, it, you said your wife first started notice in 2006. You kind of didn't. Um, but it wasn't until 2013. So that was even seven years before you actually the ultimatum was there. So that awareness came, but then action didn't happen for change. Um, and, and then even that much more to sort of get these things going. Uh, the article was, I think in 2016, so 10, 11 years, um, after your wife first said something's wrong there. Um, that's still a decade of, of time. Um, you're, you're doing very well at awareness. It takes a long to get people to move to action. It, it does. And the way to do that quicker is by senior leaders. Uh, coming forward and doing it. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, I went to general officer level conferences, um, you know, quite a bit, and I could see it uh, in their behavior. I mean, I mean, I knew it. I could, I could, I could see it. And some of them I had an opportunity to talk to and others I did not uh, because of approachability factors. Uh, and um, it, um, it, you know, we need to take care of ourselves. Number one, 
you can have a program, but the program is only going to be good as as uh, as the leader makes it by his personal or her personal investment in it. And in this case, you know, people just don't trust the system. They 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 think that there is going to be uh, repercussions uh, that are going to negatively affect them. And I would have to tell them I believe it's true. Um, you know, just the actions of the seniors above me. Uh, I needed their help. I wanted their help. I wanted them to reach out to me. I wanted them to say, hey, you know, more of us have to do this. Um, and if if we're going to increase the, you know, the overall health of the force, you can't be in denial. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it didn't interfere with my ability to do my job. It didn't interfere with my perspective. It didn't interfere with my ability to make the, it made me better, you know, uh, it made me more resilient. And I have testimony from guys that worked for me in command positions from battalion command, you know, all the way up that came to work with me when I was a SOC Africa commander. And they said, wow, sir, what a difference. I mean, you're the same guy. You're the same highly motivated guy that, you know, doing PT, you know, uh, you know, focused on the mission, you know, but your approach and uh, is much different and your personality appears to be much different and it's you're, you're just a different guy but you're doing it you're doing the same things uh, and they were like wow this is this is really good and they said hey I'm gonna follow your lead right so I mean that's all good stuff but it's lead it's leader driven right uh, it's you know it's it really is leader driven and you have to do it. You have to get the family involved. It, you have to destigmatize it. Uh, education, empower your folks, back them up. Uh, and I think that we would have a, uh, a, you know, a much different force today. We probably have different suicide levels today, suicide ideation levels, um, less uh, alcohol and drug issues, um, and I, I just think it impacts the whole climate uh, of uh, of a people organization for the better. And and uh, that's incredibly uh, accurate. Uh, the idea of you know we we take care of our equipment better than we take care of our people. Um, but even the highest powered uh, piece of equipment, if you don't maintain a Ferrari, then it's still gonna, you know, crap out on you. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially where you were at, um, I, I had the uh, the honor and the privilege to spend the last two and a half years of my career in Tenth Group, uh, supporting them. Uh, did a, a short tour over to uh, to Mauritania, uh, which was enjoyable, and I went out the top of my game. Um, that is even a different culture within the military culture. You know, we know the uh, Dio Presso Libera, right? You know, free the oppressed, but we don't, uh, the oppression of our minds, as my, uh, mm-hmm. as my friend uh, Jeff Adamek says. Um, but, the, um, uh, but the idea of the silent professional, even changing the culture within the, the spec ops community um, is even bigger push than changing maybe mainstream army did you did you see some resistance even within that oh yes um so hey these these special operation guys aren't going to uh you know aren't going to take your word for it they they have to see action 
And that's in anything that, that you do. So if you want to be a leader that they're going to trust, one that they're going to call, not, you know, refer to you as a warrior. That's one of the biggest compliments that I that I ever, you know, received from my guys is, you know, um, hey, sir, you know, just know that everybody thinks that you're you're a warrior uh, and um, they don't consider all the their other leaders uh, a warrior. So to me, that was, you know, validation in that I was doing it the right way. I wasn't looking for validation from my from the seniors above me, although I was looking for their support. I didn't get it. It didn't matter to me. The consequences are going to be the consequences. Uh, and, you know, that's one element of the reason why I was shown the door. But that's OK. That's something that I accepted, and I'm okay with that because it was it was a higher purpose, and I got validated by the guys. And so, when I won the hearts of the team leaders and the team sergeants and their trust, they got the guys to do it. And when the guys saw the benefits of it, and they saw, hey, they're not going to take me off my team. I can still deploy. You know, now I understand the services have changed that approach and and they've made it worse for our folks, because now uh, if you have PTS, you're on the non-deployable roster. And if you don't, if if you're on any kind of medication, uh, you're on the non-deployment roster. And so what we've done is I think we've taken two steps back with some of these new policies that the Department of Defense has put in place. And. You know, to get at the non-deployable issue that they have, they've made guys and gals being less acceptable of. I mean, you know, nobody wants to be taken out of their job. They certainly don't want to be medically discharged. They want to be they want to be supported. uh, And it's about the leadership in this case. And we we have to do everything we possibly can. Uh, to take care of to take care of our our folks because there is another price to be paid for it. There's the post service price that is extremely high uh, if we don't help our guys while they're on active duty when they transition into into uh, the civilian world. It becomes much difficult, much more difficult because. You know, I call it the third thing, right? This first thing that you're in in life is this community that you grow up in. Uh, Everything is taken care of for you. Most, you know, for the most part, you got a place to live. You got a place to eat. You do sports. You go to school. You go to the doctor. Everybody takes care of you. You grow up. You graduate from high school. You make a choice. Some people go in the Army or the Air Force or the Marines or the Navy or the Coast Guard or what have you. They go and they serve their country that way. Uh, and they stay in for a career, or they do a term or two of service, uh, and then they transition out. Well, while they're in this second thing called the U.S. military, they're um, they're taken care of from A to Z. Everything's taken care of for you. You know, you don't have to worry about anything, really. Uh, someone's going to be there to take care of you all the time. There's going to be something there for you medically, three squares three squares a day. You're going to have a place to sleep, blah, 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 the whole nine yards. Well, you go into this third thing and you have this transition. 
and the services don't talk to the VA because the communication system's broken and there's no way, there's really no way to do it. You have to get a physical over here. You got a physical over there. If your transition went well on your way out and you had plenty of time to do it, which generally in most cases they don't. Uh, and then now they're in the VA system and now they have to, you know, connect everything to service and all this other stuff. But there's this bureaucracy. So you fall off this cliff this cliff because there isn't this warm handshake, right? From active duty to becoming a veteran. And you're in this third thing and you don't understand this third thing. And this third thing doesn't have the same things in it to take care of you all the time. And you may not have a job. You may end up homeless. The suicide rate is, is, is what it is because of this. Um, drugs and alcohol, incarceration. It's, it's, it's this third thing you're not set up for success in, you know, even, you know, even myself, you think, oh, he's a retired general. He's got it made. No, I'm telling you, I didn't have it made. It was a struggle. And my wife talks to people about this was the most difficult time of our life in our marriage. It was very, very stressful. Uh, not that we didn't prepare for it or what have you. We tried to prepare for it the best we can. But we lost our connection. I lost my sense of purpose. What am I going to do? How do I even approach this? Um, I couldn't get a job to save my life. I couldn't get past the first interview. I was either overqualified or there was an in-house solution or, wow, we don't really know what to do with you, right? Um, and that took some time. Uh, and I joined veterans organizations uh, as a supporter and as an advisor. And that's how I met people in the same position as me who got help from this guy. And they connected me to that guy. And then that guy connected me to this guy. And then the next thing I know, oh, wow, I'm going to get a job at Southern New Hampshire University as an adjunct professor. And then, oh, wow, I'm, this guy's going to connect me to this other guy. And, and I'm going to, you know, talk to him over lunch. And, oh, he, he wants me to come in and do some teaching inside his, his business. Oh, great. That's another opportunity, right? Uh, and But that wasn't anything the service did for me. That wasn't anything that they informed me on. When I went to my transition course in the military, it was all designed on how to get a defense service job. Well, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want to do the same thing. I didn't want to do the same thing I, I was doing in uniform. I didn't want to live in Northern Virginia. I didn't want to live in Tampa. I didn't want to live in those places. I wanted to come back to New Hampshire uh, and do something different, help veterans, teach, uh, and um, coach, and uh, and train. Uh, and you know, it takes a while, you know, to break into to that. Uh, it's very unfamiliar territory, and. Uh, we we have to look at it differently uh, inside the service and how we're taking care of our people and how we're transitioning our folks. And and that's uh, that's just what you said there, sir. Is the fact that even through ten combat deployments, uh, through uh, countless TDYs back and forth in and out of the the continent of Africa, um, everything that you went through that this transition was the most challenging in your, your, your family's relationship and, and your thing. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's significant, 
and, and even the fact that as a senior leader in the Army is having the same challenges as that PFC or that young staff sergeant that's getting out of the military after eight years. Um, and, and that's, that's right. again, not something that the discussions are really being had around that. Right. Well, you know, one of the one of the guys that I became friends with here in New Hampshire was um, was a uh, Medal of Honor recipient from Afghanistan um, and a great guy. And he went from service right into college. And the way he tells the story uh, to me and to others is, yeah, it was just like the military. Uh, I had a place to stay. Um, I had a schedule. I had a syllabus. Um, I had things to do. I had things that were due. I, you know, it was like, you know, PT formation, morning formation, after lunch formation, dinner formation, go home, get up, start all over again. So his, his life was regimented, uh, in the same way that it was in the military. So, Hey, that was something he could relate to. Graduates, gets a job, shows up, they're great to have a Medal of Honor recipient in their in their business, right? Great stuff. Uh, you know, big hug, big pat on the back. There's your cubicle. Get to work. That's when the effects of PTS and other things started to flood him because he wasn't prepared to deal with that, right? And so now, okay, what do I do? I'm all you know. I'm used to being told what to do, and so. He started having problems, started having problems at home. His wife was like, hey, you know, so he talks about it uh, in a way that uh, and gives, you know, an example of his transition. And, you know, and and he would agree with you, but he would also say that he was a Medal of Honor recipient. So he gets a lot of help, right, Uh, from uh, other Medal of Honor recipients and the whole foundation there and so on and so forth. So. He did, you know, he had a connection. Uh, and that's one of the biggest things that we lose. We lose that connection. We lose that purpose. People came up to me and said, oh, hey, if you ever need anything, give me a call. Right. Well, you're not going to call anybody. You know, why don't they call you? You know? Yeah, that is, uh, you know, uh, veterans, uh, service members. We give help to others. We don't get help. We don't receive help. We don't request help. Uh, that's and that's right. really where, um, you know, a lot of it being, um, you know, it, it's up to us to help each other. Uh, you brought up a, a lot of great points beyond just post-traumatic stress, beyond just traumatic brain injury. Uh, this goes back to uh, a series that I did at the end of last year, that it's not just depression, alcohol use, you know, and, and getting pills for, for PTS and, and uh, TBI that purpose and meaning, right? You know, that's mm-hmm. significant. Uh, moral injury, um, you know, the, the change in what we believe to be right and wrong with the world. Uh, needs fulfillment. How do I meet my needs? Um, you know, I, I've said before, my, uh, my job interviews for 22 years were my promotion boards, right? I didn't know how mm-hmm. to, to put a resume together because that was my ERB, right? Or the ORB. There right. were none of yeah. these things. Uh, sir, I spent 45 minutes in a... Uh, uh, men's warehouse trying to figure out how to tie a tie in a different way than I had for two decades. Uh, luckily, the clerk was a veteran and he knew exactly what I was doing, right? But, but that's the issue is is we have to learn how to meet our needs in a totally different way. And then, of course, the family. Um, and, and those are the aspects about mental health that we don't talk about 
because mm-hmm. these aren't things that you talk about in in uh, polite company, right? Or or, or right. some people don't talk about. It. You're very vocal about it, about your your experience, even now, um, in in carrying on that um, leading by example. You're you're very vocal about, hey, you know, almost two decades of war will change any individual and changes a whole generation of individuals. It certainly does, and you know, we have we have to be we have to be prepared for that. Um, you know, human nature is is what it is. People are going to be affected, and we want them to be affected, right? Uh, we want them to have humanity. We don't want them to lose their compassion and their empathy for people, um, but we want to help them also in, you know, in their struggles. And, and I hear countless veterans after I talk from, you know, older eras and generations that wish they uh, had heard this uh, from a senior leader um, when they were serving or after they got done. And there was much different acceptance about it inside of society. We have to, you know, PTS is not a pathology. It's not anything that it's not a mental illness. It is your brain's reaction to an environment in order to help you survive. And that's it. Good or bad. You know, your brain, you know, reorders it. It's not a disorder. And that's why I dropped the D from it. And that's another thing you talked about. Soft guys, they were Hey, I don't have PTSD. I don't have a disorder. And I completely agree with you when you when you look at it and you listen to doctors and scientists and everybody that knows about the brain says, no, it's a reordering of the brain. And if you didn't have it, then you wouldn't be able to survive. But you have to know how to deal with it when you get back, because a lot of things will affect you know, the hypervigilance, the social, the, you know, excluding yourself from social events, it all impacts, right? Uh, patience, your ability not to be comfortable driving and driving like you're, you know, uh, you know, uh, always looking for a uh, roadside bomb or something like those are all real because your, your brain doesn't know the difference between Iraq, Afghanistan, you name it, country in Africa and Stratum, New Hampshire, right? Unless you're able to understand the triggers and teach your brain that, right? Uh, and so you got to be, you know, you got to you got to know to do this. Um, and it just it just helps you uh, it just helps you, you know, be able to to adapt better. And our veterans are. And our service members are hugely adaptable people. That's what that's what they're all about. They're very flexible. They're very resilient when given uh, the opportunity, uh, and, you know, to be to be that way. Uh, and, you know, a lot of things I tell veteran audiences is, hey, they're not looking for a handout. Um, they're they're not going to ask you. You're going to have to go find them. Um, and. That's a hugely important thing for our society to understand, given that less than 1% serve. You know, um, that means 99% really don't understand the military. And it's it's up to us to teach them, uh, certainly senior leaders to teach them, let them tell their stories, 
not to get sympathy and handouts, but to develop an understanding and appreciation of what our veterans have earned. They've earned these things from our country. They haven't, it's not a handout, uh, but they're not going to ask you for them. And they're hard workers and they'll do great work for you if you give them the opportunity. You know, I know I was told by several HR folks, well, you're overqualified. And I said, well, that doesn't matter. I, I want to do the job. It, it'll give me a connection. It'll give me purpose. Um, I want to get up, go to work, do a job, come home, be with my family. That's what I want to do. Uh, well, you know, the HR people in their pair, well, we can't hire you. You're overqualified. Do, 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 do. Um, you know, they go into tilt mode, durka, 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 tilt mode. And you're like, come on. Um, I just want to do the job. Uh, and Right. And I think that's what a lot of, um, you know, veterans or former service members, once they leave the military, uh, that's all they want is a shot. They don't want the majority of the veterans that I come in contact with. And I'm certain the ones that, that you work with, they mm-hmm. don't want the world handed to them on a silver plate because we're used to nope. working for what we what we earn, right? We're used to doing mm-hmm. that. Um, but then, you know, a lot of people think that it's just sort of sitting back and, and, you know, feed me, feed me. And that again, destroys that meaning and purpose for a lot of, a lot of veterans. And, and that awareness that you talk about, the, the level of, of generating that awareness, um, both in the service members themselves and, and the civilian community, um, it, it's critical uh, because you don't, they don't know what they don't know. There was one part in that article that, that I really, really enjoyed was, or I appreciated, I should say, uh, was when you said you were talking to a group of your guys and you asked them a certain thing. Could you, you know that part that I'm talking about? Yeah. I'd like to right. to have you tell the audience that story. Yeah, well, you know, I asked them, I said, hey, listen, how many of you, you know, have deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan? Of course, everybody's hand goes up. All right. Great. You know, how many of you have been, uh, you know, around a firefight, around explosions, you know, stuff like that? Boom. All the hands go up. And then I ask them, how many of you have gone and got checked out? And only two hands went up, me and my command master chief. Right. And. That point sunk in, you know, because they know. You know, they're looking at themselves in the mirror every day. They know they have a balance issue. I mean, that was one of my problems, that balance issue and vision alignment issue. Well, we got special ops guys. Their balance is hugely important. Uh, And if their balance is off, it's like the front end alignment of a vehicle, right? If it's off, hey, we're going to fix that uh, on our vehicle because it's going to cause all kinds of other problems. Uh, And so we get it fixed. Well, these guys deal with balance problems. They try to overcompensate for it. But the problem is you're coming in, nighttime mission, fast rope, Black Hawk, CH-47, goes into hover mode. You're sliding down the, uh, the, the fast rope. You get on the building, and you got to traverse a, a narrow plank to go from one building to the next, and you have balance issues. You are a huge risk to that mission because if you have balance issues and those balance issues decide to come into play when you're under night vision goggles, stressful rotor blades, perhaps enemy fire, and that ba- and you have a balance issue, hell, not having balance issues in that environment 
is is stressful enough and can cause someone to fall off a plank. Never mind adding in, well, I have vision alignment issues. So, you know, one foot in front of the other kind of thing. Oh, I got balance issues. Well, you know, hey, we got to get those fixed and they're all fixable. You know, they put you in this balance machine and they tell you what you, okay, here's, here's how your balance is. They put you in this eyeball machine and they tell you what you need to do to fix that. And then you come back for testing and they recalibrate you. You know, and our guys were learning how to shoot with vision alignment uh, problems. Uh, and then they got it. They realized, wow, what a difference it makes. Right. Uh, and it's huge. And, and and so, I mean, it's you know, it's just those kind of it's just those kind of things. When you start talking to them, they know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and they they add the credibility of it coming from their commanding general and their, you know, master chief, Navy SEAL, the two guys that have done the same missions that they're doing uh, when we were, you know, their rank or in their, uh, you know, in that part of our career, uh, you know, you just get a tremendous amount of credibility and then the guys go and they're like, Wow, what, what what a huge change! You know, I used to walk down the street with my wife, and I would was constantly, um, you know, holding her hand. And I'm constantly leaning, you know, off to the right, off to, because I had a balance issue, and that's why she wanted to walk in the street all the time because I kept pushing her off the sidewalk, uh, and then our walks would get stressful because she's like, "Will you quit pushing?" You know what I mean? Uh, it's like God bless America trying to go for a walk with my wife and hold her hand and, and enjoy the weather or what have you. And, you know, um, you know, I tell that story cause I know the guys, you know, you know, understand, understand that as well. And then of course, always the big elephant in the room is sexual dysfunction, um, which is correctable. Uh, you know, we're finding with, the environments our guys serve in because of the uh, the pollution in them and and the toxicity of things and being around explosives, training around explosives. You get all these chemicals in your body. It lowers your testosterone. Age lowers your testosterone. And boom, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, you're a steely-eyed special forces, special ops guy. Um, and you're having sexual dysfunction issues. Uh, and so that stresses the relationship. You're mad at yourself, but you get mad at your wife, uh, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, that part of your relationship starts going down when it's when it's very correctable if you go for help. And they test you for those things, too, as part of our program. And our guys were like, wow, what a difference. Right. It's a huge thing. It's, you know, it's human nature. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we got to take care of our people better. There's a report that comes out on your equipment, right? Operational readiness. If it goes below 90%, you get phone calls from the, uh, the entire chain of command wondering how you're going to fix it and when you're going to have it ready. Hey, there isn't a report like that on people in the military. And we'll, we're good enough to operate at 60% of our of our personnel readiness, but we can't go go below 90 on our equipment, right? Uh, and as some folks would tell me every once in a while, hey, sir, something's got to give, right? 
uh, and that's true. Something's got to give. No, and that's uh, that's absolutely true. And and again, just that awareness, raising that awareness, the example of uh, a very tangible example of uh, look around and see how many of you have uh, have experienced a, a blast overpressure, but none of mm-hmm. you are going to uh, to get that that help. In uh, in even what you're doing now, and your willingness to come on the show uh, as a senior leader and just say, look, this is this is an issue. It's been an issue. It was an issue back in uh, you know Socrates' days. It was an issue in the every single period of combat from you know King Arthur up until now. Um, but now we have the ability to stand up and say something and do something. And and I really appreciate you taking your time today. Anything else you'd like to uh, close out with? Well, I think um, I would just like to make a um, couple of just a couple of comments on. Um, you know, caring for our veterans uh, out in the community and, you know, some of the uh, overarching themes that I've run into. um, And when people ask, you know, what they can do to help, um, I say, well, you can establish veterans community care programs to raise the awareness of folks within the community, because the bottom line is it's really the community that's going to fix this problem. It's not going to be a top-down VA um, uh, solution to it. The VA needs to change, of course. The leadership needs to be better. The bureaucracy needs to be streamlined. They have to connect themselves better to private medical care and, uh, you know, uh, private organizations that help um, that help our veterans. But, um, you know, establish and enforce standards. Uh, to you know, of the community uh, care providers is another one. Um, uh, expand eligibility for all our veterans uh, and generations. You know, we have the 9/11 generation uh, that has different uh, and a wider uh, wider eligibility for benefits than our um, than our uh, Vietnam veterans. Uh, that needs to be fixed. Um, and we need to do a better job of uh, keeping pressure on the military to come up with better transition programs that connects better uh, to the VA. Uh, and I think that's hugely, hugely important. One of the things that I found uh, when I got promoted to general officer, one of the things that I really learned uh, in the uh, four years I was a general was that people do not really care how much you know. Um, they get it, right? You're a general. You had to know something to get there, just like anyone else that goes through the ranks. Get that. They really want to know how much you care. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I think that is where senior leaders uh, make the difference. Uh, you know, how much you care uh, is hugely important. Uh, and we have to really start showing our folks that in, in this this particular area. So, Dwayne, I want to thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, we have a lot to do to care for our service members and our veterans. Um, like I say, I, I'm, I'm honored, and I stand by to humbly serve in any way I can. So God bless you and for what you're doing to raise awareness, uh, and um, have a great day. You too. I appreciate it, sir. All right. God bless you. Take care. Thank you. 
You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. It's rare to hear such a senior leader in the military talk so openly about their own experiences when it comes to the psychological impact of multiple deployments, much less a leader in the special operations community who then implemented the interventions for the troops he was leading. Make no mistake, General Boldick is a leader with a distinguished and accomplished career in the military and was able to succeed because of his mental health treatment, not in spite of it, and did not need to hide it shamefully. There are a lot of great points in our discussion, but a couple I really want to drive home is that if you don't get checked out, something worse may be going on than a little irritability or sleeplessness. The story about the company sergeant major whose preventive screening revealed an unknown brain tumor and the fact that he was able to take care of that, get a new hip, take care of the psychological stuff, and still get back into the force, you never know what benefits you could get from reaching out and saying, hey, something ain't quite right here. I think I need to check it out. Another point I would like to reiterate, General Bolduc talks about the third thing, life after the military. When we leave the military, we're sometimes shown how we can continue down the path we're on. If a cook, go to culinary school. If military police, become a cop. If you're a general, become an analyst or a consultant or work for a company that does the same thing that you did in the Army. When I went to North Africa with 10th Special Forces Group, there were a couple of retired Special Forces soldiers who were contracted to write the scenarios for the training event. He could have easily fit into something like that, but he didn't want to. He wanted to engage in the third thing on his own terms. And it was challenging. Even as a general officer, he found it difficult to find someone to give him a job. That doesn't mean that you should be discouraged, but it does mean that you should be aware. It's not going to be a cakewalk, either getting out of the military or getting things going again. It takes effort, and that which made us successful against significant odds in the military can make us successful against significant odds in our post-military life. That's what I'm trying to do here on the Headspace and Timing podcast. Remind service members that they can use the discipline and determination they had in the military to live the post-military life the way they want. To let family members know what their veteran experienced and how to support them. And help those who work with veterans, employers, case managers, and other professionals understand more about military culture and mindset. If you want to keep up with all the latest information, you can get the latest content delivered to you through Facebook Messenger by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com and clicking on the orange button in the middle of the picture that comes up on the page. Next week, we're going to talk about how research into mental health and wellness can inform future efforts at developing wellness in service members, veterans, and their families. Terry Tanelian from the RAND Corporation is recognized as one of the most prolific and knowledgeable research in the field of mental health and wellness when it comes to those who serve our nations, their families, and their caregivers. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. And until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, 
share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. 
These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.